Today's reading is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which can be found on page 886 in your Pew Bibles. John 1, chapter 1, 1 through 18. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Good morning. What we've just heard read before us is a life-altering declaration. Uh, There are so many statements in this passage that are life-reorienting, life-shattering, that that change everything about the way we see the world, we see ourselves, and we actually find hope. Let me pray into that, and then we'll jump into this passage and see what God has for us this morning. Jesus, you are the light. You're the light. We're not the light. We can't become the light. We can't find the light here among ourselves. It had to come outside of us. It had to come from outside the world. It had to come from God himself. You are the light of the world. God, I, I pray just even as we, we sang just a moment earlier, we wait on you. We wait on you because it's in you that our hope is found, that peace is found, that uh, life is found. We wait on you. So God, I, I pray that you would encourage us by your words today. Would you put strength in us this morning, that we would have strength in you this morning as we wait on you in a dark and dying world, a world that is getting darker in a, in a, in a, in a culture, in a world where we can lose hope, where we can be discouraged, where we can lose heart. God, would you cheer us up with this word, that light overcomes darkness. Would you tend to our souls and make us strong in you, believing your word because it is, because it is true, because it is about you. And God, would you get, would you like, those of us who have like lost heart, those of us who have, um, have downcast souls this Christmas season, would you lift up our countenance not to ourselves, not to one another, but to you. Would you set our gaze on you? You won't leave us disappointed. You will follow through. You who have all the power 
of creative power in your hands, you recreate life. Would you orient our gaze to you this morning and give us confidence and make us happy this season? Make us cheerful this season that that is true and that we can bank our lives on it. Would you do that among us in your name? Amen. Yeah, as I was thinking about preaching this morning, I, I, I feel like I regularly, this kind of goes through my mind every Christmas season. I kind of think about just how interesting and maybe a little odd it is, uh, how our culture just naturally at Christmas season kind of clicks into this rhythm. Like we just kind of fall into this, this ideal, into this like social agreement this season that we can all seem to agree with in our culture that if we could just pull the rope and choose to pull things in a certain direction, if we could for just a moment in time be kinder to strangers, if we could be more gracious to the poor, if we could be just a little bit more tolerant with our family members. I know that's hard, but if we could just be a little more tolerant of the people closest to us, if we could be just a little bit more joyful with the songs that we sing and do these Christmas traditions that make us feel and set kind of a, 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 a feel in the room, if we just did these things together, somehow we all agree that for one month out of the year, if we could pull this off, then the output would be we would receive just a little more hope. We would get just a, a measure of a little bit more peace, a little more cheer, a little more light, and a little less dark. Like that, that's, what we, that's what we want. But how can those lost in the dark, wandering in the dark, perpetuating the dark, ever find hope to create light themselves? And how can they ever have hope that somehow a little goodness that they can muster up in a Christmas season for a short time will somehow even eradicate and overcome darkness? Like, I don't know about your life, but even my hidden individual sin, I find hard to overcome. The places where I feel stuck and the places where I am regularly struggling, I struggle to overcome darkness, let alone the evil in our world the unbelieving, the hostile, the loss, the death, the judgment. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We didn't just mess up. We weren't just needing a bump. We're evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And this is why Jesus, the light of the world, has come to us at Christmas. He has come into the darkness of the world. And our passage today tells us that his light overcomes the darkness of our world. Hope can't be found by just adding a little bit more light into our world. The only hope we can have is if light comes outside of us, outside of the world, and breaks into our dark world and shines light on our dark world. That's what our passage is telling us today, that Jesus came into the world and the light overcomes the darkness. Verse five, look at it. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. It cannot overcome it. What does this mean that light overcomes the darkness? This is crucially important. Like this is huge for us. This is crucial. If you're a Christian, what could be more important than this? If your hope is in Jesus as your only hope, if your hope is in him to save you and to rescue you, you need to know and have confidence that he actually has the power to overcome the darkness. You actually need to know that he's gonna follow through with that if you're putting your lot in with him. John 12, 35 says, the light is among you. Jesus is saying this of himself. I am the light, I am among you for a little while longer while you have the light lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. If you do not walk in the light, darkness will overtake you. That, that's what he's saying. You, you have no hope without my light. It's gonna overtake you. It's gonna take you down. If you have the light, then believe in the light and walk in the light, then you're promised that the darkness will be overcome for you and you will be made a son of the light. You'll be a son of God. Light will always overcome the darkness. How do you know that? 
Like, is that really true? Like, how, how could this be the case? Could it ever be the case that darkness can overcome light? Could it, like, is it a toss-up? Like, how evenly matched are they? Like, will one, maybe, like, maybe it's, uh, it, we don't know. We got to pick a side. Let's pick one side. We don't know. Like, is it possible that light won't overcome darkness? How do we know for sure that the light will continue to shine until it completely eradicates darkness? I think these are fair questions. These are honest kind of questions, especially when we look out across our world, right? When we look out into the world, at times we can kind of, we see goodness, we see mercy, we see God's grace in places in our world, but we also see a lot of darkness. We see a lot of places where, like if we're honest, it doesn't look like light is overcoming darkness, right? And darkness is lurking in the corners of our society at times, right? We have, and, and we've even like noticed when we look out into the world, places where darkness was lurking and hiding has seemed to taking ground. It's actually becoming more mainstream, right? Things that were generally disapproved, things that were then just tolerated have been accepted and now even celebrated and even promoted in our world, right? Things tend to get dark, and we, we see that. I, mean, I could use dozens of examples for this to prove this. We already know this if you spent a minute watching the news. Let me highlight one place. In the late 1960s and early 70s in New York City, 12 women led by Kate Millett um, gathered together in their New York apartment. These women who laid the groundwork for the second wave of feminism they would gather around a large table and repeat this chant. They would say, why are we here today? They would repeat, to make revolution. What kind of revolution, they would ask? And then all of them would say, a cultural revolution. And how do we make cultural revolution? And they would say, by destroying the American family. How do we destroy the American family? They would all repeat back, by destroying the American patriarch. And how do we destroy the American patriarch? They would say by taking his power away. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy. How do we destroy monogamy? And they would chant back by promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, abortion, and homosexuality. This thing that existed in the corners, nobody saw it has become so mainstream, it's ubiquitous with being in our American culture, right? Promiscuity, we don't bat an eye at people sleeping around and uh, being promiscuous with one another and having one night stands and uh, people living together. It's, it, it's so normal, we don't even think about it anymore. Eroticism. Parents, if you can guard your children from seeing pornography before they're in middle school, it's unbelievable if you can pull that off, right? Pornography has been so rampant in our society, it's everywhere. Prostitution, this thing that was generally seen as something bad for someone, now is heralded as a way by which women can find independence and self-fulfillment um, and, and being a self-made woman, right? Like there's these OnlyFans sites and all these different things that actually say there's dignity in this and it's actually a way for women to empower themselves. Abortion, man, we celebrate the overturn of Roe v. Wade, but I think what it's done is like uncovered this... Um, this reality of our society that we may not have known before, you know, before we could just blame this law, but now, you know, politicians are getting squishy and gray and Americans just generally don't have the appetite to outlaw this. Homosexuality, what is marriage anymore, right? What is marriage? Is there any value in it? What's it for? What's its purpose? Now we don't even know what a woman is, what a man is, what they're for, what they're made for, what the marriage is called toward. We think we can interchange genders and these things have become not just at the uh, corners of our society, but they're promoted, right? And we could go lots of different directions here. You get the point. We live in a dark world. We're moving fast in that direction and in many ways we're already there. And, and here's the point of the passage. I will stake my life on John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness. Jesus shines. 
His kingdom shines. The gospel shines. His church is to shine. The darkness will not overcome it. How can we be sure of that? It will not overcome the light. But how can you be sure? How can you be confident of this? How can we be sure? This is what verses one through four were all written for. To put like steel in your spine, to make you confident that this is true, that you can put your faith in Jesus. He's a sure found bet. There's three reasons why light will overcome darkness. That's what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna walk through uh, these verses in reverse order um, from verse four, okay? So if you've closed your Bibles, open them up, look at verse four, John one, verse four. Okay, so the first thing we see is in verse four, in him was life and life was the light of men. So we see light and life. This can be kind of a confusing passage, but we see these words light and life here. These are two very universally used religious kind of statements, these words here. And they're often used, um, they can become, they're, they're often used so often they become these like categories can feel vague to us as like these propped up ideas of sentimentality and they can in a sense, kind of lose their meaning. But these words are used here because they are focusing us toward something fundamental about Jesus. In him was life, and in his life was the light of men. What is this telling us about Jesus? John 5.25, if you just flip over in your Bible a couple of pages, John 5.25 says, for as the Father has life in himself. What a statement self-existing life of the Father. So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So just like God the Father has this self-existing life, the Son also has a pre-existent, self-existing life. The light that shines and overcomes the darkness is a light that is self-existing, living light. What a statement. <laughs> self-existing, living light. The reason light will overcome the darkness is because the light is not dependent on any other life. Okay, that's what he's getting at here. The light that comes to us is a self-existing life. He exists on himself for his own life. This is why Jesus called himself the light of the world. His living life is the light of the world. The light that overcomes darkness is a living light. That, we can draw two things out of this. The first one is that this light has power, okay? The first one is this light has power. Throughout the rest of the gospel, the idea of light and life are used regularly to talk about Jesus' uh, uh, ability to save us. For instance, later in John, um, Jesus calls himself the resurrection and the life. But here in this verse, the focus isn't really on salvation. The focus here is on creation. It's a creation that he's talking about here. The essence of this is who Jesus is at creation. He has a self-sustaining life and creation-giving life. So let me restate verse four in my own words. Okay, put your eyes on verse four and I'm gonna tell you uh, how I would interpret this. The self-existing life of Jesus was so dispensed at creation that it became the light of the human race. He has power. He has a life-giving power, which is to say that this light has a purpose. This light has a purpose it is to beget life. So that's the second thing is the light of life gives life. The light has power and it has the ability to give life. It wasn't motionless. This isn't a, you know, uh, this isn't a standing still kind of light. This light was aimed toward men. It shone on the face of men and women at creation, created in his image, and it shines now in creation and it shines now in the life of the risen and living Jesus who gives life. John 12, 36 says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The only way that believing in the light can make you a son of light and overcome the darkness in our lives is if the light has the power to give life. And John tells us it does. 
It has that kind of power. So a reason we can have confidence at Christmas time that the light will overcome the darkness of this world is because this light is a living, self-existing light. This light has power, it has the light to give life. Now you might ask, what if the darkness has more power? It may be able to give life, but what if the darkness actually contains more power than the light? What if it can do more, uh, what if it can take more life than the light can give life, right? Or perhaps it's an even match, right? It's kind of a toss up. Maybe it's like in your mind, the yin and yang symbol, right? You got the kind of this perfect balance between light and dark and it can be kind of a, a toss up. Well, here's the second reason we can have confidence that the light will overcome the darkness. And we see that in verse three. The light is life. If the light is life, then the life is the creator of all things. The second reason we can have confidence is because this light, which is life, is the creator of all things. Look at verse three. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's nothing that's made without him making it. The hymn here is the same hymn from verse four. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So the powerful and life-giving life of Jesus that shines in the darkness is the agent here by which all things were made. So in verse three, John states this first in a positive way. He says all things were made through him. And then to further emphasize uh, this force and make it actually pretty emphatic to push this on us and say, listen, not just all things were made from him, without him was not anything made that was made. He wants to put an explanation point there. The self-existing life made everything and not one thing in this world exists without him making it. Now it's common in our world for smart people to assume the existence of everything apart from an intelligent designer or creator. But why is there something rather than nothing? Have you ever thought about that? Why is there something rather than nothing? And Stephen Hawking and others try to answer this saying that it happened spontaneously. They call it spontaneous creation. They say everything physical came from nothing. Nothing becomes very interesting then. If everything came from nothing, nothing becomes this really interesting idea because we know that any cause must first have an equal or greater cause. Like you learned that in middle school, right? So the only way you get a universe created by nothing is then by redefining nothing, redefining the word nothing. And it's very hard to believe this, but Lawrence Krauss in his book, A Universe from Nothing, tells us, this is a quote, because something is physical, nothing must be physical. Especially if you define it as the absence of something, end quote. That's insanity. <laughs> like that doesn't make a lick of sense. Maybe you can explain it to me later. Some go to extreme measures to try to get rid of God but you're not getting rid of God and you're actually feeling pretty spectacularly to give an explanation for the creation of the universe. And worse, if you have enough faith to believe this, then there's absolutely no power and no life which you can link yourself to and grab hold of for hope from this dark and dying world. But we have an answer that before anything was created, God existed and said, let there be light. If God isn't eternal, then who or what was before God? The fact that anything exists at all means something preexisted and it must be eternal. The fact that anything exists at all means it must have preexisted and it had to be eternal. Everything you see was made by him. Everything in Kansas City was made by him. Everything you own in your home was made by him. All the beauty of life was made by him. And then check this, and all the angelic powers of darkness who proliferate evil, whose aim it is to expand darkness, they were also made by him. He made everything. And, and, there's, and there's why we know that light has overcome the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome the light because the light created the angelic powers of darkness. Without him was not anything that was made that was made. If the light created them, then the light has to be more powerful than them. Now you might retort, well, don't we create things all the time that kill us? 
Like, don't we make things that actually kill us? Like, we make a car and people die in cars. People make airplanes and they die in airplanes. You could set off a bomb and die from the bomb, right? Like, that happens all the time with us. Sure, yes, we invent things. We put elements together. We create things and then set them into motion. And oftentimes, we are harmed by them. But we have no means by which to create elements, We have no means by which to create the elements in which we're putting together, and we have no means by which to set boundaries around which those elements can operate, right? We have no means by which to create the laws that this universe operates within. God didn't just create the elements in the physical reality. He created the laws and the rules and the boundaries in which they operate themselves. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if you had the power to create everything If you had the power to create every something out of nothing and had the power over the laws by which they function, wouldn't you also then have the power to turn those somethings to nothing? God has that power. God has that power. And the powers of darkness actually know this. You you see this in the gospels. Matthew 8, 29, Jesus is facing a demonically oppressed man and the demons cried out to him, what have you to do with us? Oh, son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, right there, they know that their time is set and that their time will end. There's something, there is a real day when all of those things will come to an end and they're on the clock. There is a day, their time is short and they know it. Their time is short and it is a finite time. If you go to Revelation 12, 12, we see, Uh, The authors say, rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. The imagery of earth and sea here is talking about uh, the, the, the chaos, the sin, the darkness of our world. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short and it is short. His time is short. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light is the life that is the, that, that is the power, that is the life-giving life to bring an animating light and overcome the darkness wherever it is. Darkness cannot overcome this kind of light, which takes us to our final reason. Verse one, look at verse one with me. This is the greatest reason. This is, this is the main reason. If we just had this reason, this would be enough. The light is God himself. You see, we see in verse one that before anything was made, the word was there with God. This word, this light was there before creation. So this word was uncreated with God. Look at verse one. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now, when you say you're with someone, when you're with your wife, when you're with your significant other, you're saying that you have a meaningful and even intimate relationship with them. And that's what John's telling us here. This word was oriented toward God. They were oriented toward one another. They had a relationship together. This is what he's getting at with this kind of language. That the person, uh, uh, the, the word, enjoyed a personal relationship with God before the creation of the world. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. But the word was distinguishable from God. That's what he's saying. Distinguishable. Imagine two persons. But then he goes on to say that the word actually was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, that seems confusing. Which is it? Like, John, make up your mind. Which one? You Which way is it? Is he with God? Is he distinguishable from God? Or is he God? John's answer, yes, exactly. You you caught what I'm trying to say. He was with God and he actually was God Almighty himself. Jesus is God himself. He's saying that he is both. The reason the light cannot overcome the darkness is because the light of life was a self-existing with God and the light actually was God and darkness cannot overcome the power and the might of God himself. It cannot, it cannot. Two persons distinguishable from one another, but one almighty God. 
John wants to take us all the way back to Genesis 1-1 here. He wants you to imagine complete darkness. Complete darkness before creation. In the beginning, he says, go all the way back to the pre-existed nothing. He wants you to imagine the moment of creation. Darkness is all encompassing. Then Genesis 1-2, and darkness was over the surface of the deep until God stepped out on nothing. He looked into nothing and he said, let there be light, Genesis 1-3. And at no other time in creation would it be more appropriately said that light shines into the darkness. And here's what he wants you to do. He wants us to think of how the darkness was overcome at creation, at the work of Jesus creating the world. And wants us to imagine what kind of universe creating, life-giving power that Christ the almighty God himself can exert toward a dark and lifeless world. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says in Colossians 1.6, this is what should be in your mind. Paul says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And if he has the power to do that, then he has the power to be God over visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do we have hope that light will overcome the darkness? But do you have hope that the creative power of God Almighty can actually bring them to nothing? Jesus has come into a dark world and is the light of the world. He has dominion over the rulers and over the authorities because all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, the light of the world, the one who holds life in his hands, the almighty God, he is before everything. And because he's the creator and because he is the sustainer, meaning he holds all things together now, things that seem dark in our world only continue, only are perpetuated, only because he still has purposes for them. Only they exist, only because he has allowed them to continue to exist. Darkness will be overcome by him in the last day. The light shone in the darkness at creation, at the power of the life-giving creative power of Jesus. And now verse 14, the word was born and became flesh And just like at creation, the light shines in the darkness. And again, someday he will return and his light will shine and completely overcome darkness. That's our sermon for this morning. What I wanna do with the rest of our time is talk about a couple of ways that this should impact us as a church family. How does this truth orient our Christmas season? How does this hope, this confidence, this trust in the light to overcome darkness in our life actually reorient the way we celebrate this as a family? John 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. We can actually experience real lasting peace in our lives. In a world of tribulation, Jesus says, you can have peace in a world that you will have tribulation. Then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Hey, Christians, take heart this Christmas season. Take heart, be of good cheer. God has overtaken the world. Like Jesus will overtake the world. He has overcome the world. He will overtake the darkness. Jesus has overcome the world and yet we still live in tribulation. We still will Like we live among the darkness. We still live in the darkness of our world, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of the devil. That power is broken and yet it is still existent in our world. He has broken that power by his blood to make us oriented and uh, to have life in God, but we still live in a broken world but we can still take heart and be of good cheer. And I think Nehemiah is a good example for us here. <clears throat> Nehemiah is a, is a pretty uh, amazing book if you've never read it. 
Um, in Nehemiah, they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they're up against it. Like everything is against them. Let me read uh, chapter eight, verse 10 of Nehemiah and then we'll make some applications from this. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 10 says, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has, who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hey, the men, uh, the, the community with Nehemiah were trying to rebuild the walls that were ruined in their day and they were up against it. <clears throat> they, they, were, they were being attacked from all sides. They were being uh, spoken down to. They were making, uh, they, they were, um, they were, they had to like leave uh, their, their, uh, their own self-interest behind to put in with one another and trying to rebuild these walls. They had it a lot worse than what we have today. And Nehemiah gathers them together and says, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to be of good cheer and to take heart because the strength of the Lord is our strength. Like the Lord will be our strength today. We have joined the Lord because he himself will be our strength. And I think this is our hope today. When we actually look out into this Christmas season and the darkness out there, we have reason to be joy-filled, to have cheer, to actually celebrate as a church family because his strength is our joy. We will find joy in him being light. And, 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 our, the weapons that we have are not like the weapons of the world. Paul tells us that one of our weapons is a joy-filled spirit, that we can actually be joy-filled as a weapon against the darkness. And we don't have to be sad or sorry that our kids are gonna have to face that in a new way in this next generation or that our grandchildren have to face that in a unique way. And God will prepare them for the work that he has before them. So what are ways that we can cultivate this kind of joy? We have reason to celebrate. What are ways we can practice this cheer this season? I wanna name three different ways that we can lean into this season and be of good cheer. The first one is by singing the Psalms as a church family. Singing songs together as a church family. Singing songs does this unique thing opposed from just reading something or uh, reciting something. Songs actually drive things that are true down into our souls. They have this power. This reason why when you sing certain songs, you'd like tear up. That's why when you sing certain songs, you can... Uh, like things that really matter to you, uh, you can remember the songs that surrounded that season that you used to sing around that season, right? Because there's something deep in your soul about it. Make the songs that you sing in the meaningful seasons of your life oriented toward God. And I think the Psalms do that in a particularly beautiful way because the Psalms are the hymnal of God. He wrote them. Like, I love the songs that we write. I love the songs that are modern that we get to sing, but the Psalms are God's songs. He actually put this hymnal together. The Psalms are songs God wrote and he inhabits our praises when we sing his words back to him that he wrote. He gave us this hymnal. We should sing them so that he inhabits that joy with us. Man, uh, our lives are a battle and the battle track of our lives should be the Psalms, okay? Hey, if you're primarily singing modern pop Christian songs, the Psalms are gonna stretch you because they say things that would make you blush at times. They make you get honest about things that you would rather keep stuffed in you. And they make you even say things about other people that just don't seem prudent. They don't seem nice, Midwestern nice. They don't, they actually press our vocabulary and stretch our ability to talk to God and to encourage one another in ways that are really biblical and meaningful and life-giving for navigating this world. They're a way to turn up the volume on your cheer this season. Get in the Psalms. Now, you might do that just by reading them because they are a little, you know, they're old. Um, we don't sing songs the way that Hebrews did millennia ago, right? So let me give you a couple of tips here. For my family, something we've been doing, this is an idea that we've stolen from a couple other families in our church and we've loved it. Um, every single day, we sing a song together. And, um, and we sing the same song for a month at a time. Choose a hymn or a psalm 
that your family will sing for a month at a time. You don't have to do exactly what we're doing, but that's what we're doing. We do uh, a song once a month as a, uh, as a family. We either do it in the morning uh, before, you know, around our breakfast table before I, we all head off for the day, or we do it during our family worship in the evening. You could do either one. But we get together and we just pick a song for the month, and every day we sing that same song. Tracy even has them during the day write the song down and practice writing it down because we're trying to commit it to memory together. We think it really matters. I want it in their hearts. One pro tip here is check out Poor Bishop Hooper. This is an artist here locally where they've actually written a song for each psalm. They've written 150 of them and they've put the psalms to modern music. That's Poor Bishop Hooper. You can get that on Spotify or um, I don't know, in the Google, I don't know. Uh, search for that, download that. They're excellent songs. All right, number two. <clears throat> Sing the Psalms. Number two, table fellowship. Table fellowship. There's three different ways that we should be gathering around tables as a church family. The first one is with family meals. Hey, um, <clears throat> At church is where you receive instruction. In many ways, you could think about what we do here from the pulpit and during Sunday schools is we package theological truths for you and we hand it to you. But it's your job to take it home and begin unpacking it. Like you've got to unpack these truths. You've got to turn them over and chew on them and discuss them and try them on. Deuteronomy 6, 7 has a lot here to teach us. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. <clears throat> you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall be, it shall be on the frontlets of your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What they're getting at here is what we're talking about on Sundays and what we unpack in Sunday schools should not be regulated to just Sundays during these hours. Take it home with you. Talk about it as you're walking around. Talk about it around your dinner table. It's on Sundays that we package it for you. It's at your dinner table that you should be unpacking these with your children and with your roommates and with your family. Use your table to unpack these deep truths and engage it. Dedicate necessary time to this. So many families wanna eat on the run, right? We're eating over the counter. We're trying to get from place to place. To have meaningful discussion at your table takes time. It takes training. It takes a little bit each day, but over time, it changes your life and it uh, invests in your ch children for the long run. The second way we should be gathering around tables is for hospitality. Hospitality is not entertainment, okay? I love entertaining. Tracy and I love entertaining. Many of you probably have come over our home. We love uh, throwing parties and just hanging out. Hospitality is a little different. Hospitality says, come into my life. This isn't trying to impress you. This isn't trying to prove anything to you. This is, hey, we're doing this. Can, can you come and join us in what we do? Make your dinner table a space where you're inviting brothers and sisters in this room into our homes. We should know each other's homes. We should sit at each other's tables. The discussion that I talked about in the family meal, that should happen with other people as well. Maybe uh, set aside one meal a week, one meal a month. If one week seems like too much, do one a month. One meal a month where you're inviting people into your home over for dinner at your table and don't do something special. Invite them into what you already do. And if what you do isn't meaningful, then change what you do. Uh, invite them into gathering at your table where you're talking about the sermon. Maybe you're praying for one another. Maybe you're going around the table and sharing what God's been doing in your life. Maybe at the end of your meal together is the time where you sing a psalm together before you end your meal and you pray for each other. Invite people into that. The last way we should invite people around our table is we should feast. We should be a people who are not shy to throw a party. We should be throwing feasts as the family of God. We have something to celebrate. We have something to be of good cheer of, to take heart of. Jesus has promised that the darkness will not overcome his light. We should be throwing feasts for that. You probably did that at Thanksgiving. You'll probably do that for Christmas. What would it look like for you to set your table lavishly with good food and good drink and invite people in 
as a marker of what God's been doing in a particular season, as a way to demonstrate and declare to your community and unbelievers and neighbors that God is gracious to me. I wanna be gracious to you. We should be throwing feasts that demonstrate the grace and the love and the lavishness of God who came to us in the flesh, laying down his perfect life in order to bring us into his family so we could be sons of light. Number three, sing psalms, table fellowship, confess your sins. Confess your sins. Light will overcome the darkness. Praise be to God. Confess your sins. John 12, 36 says, while you have the light, keep believing in the light that you may become sons of light. If you've placed your faith in Jesus as your only hope to be right with God, then Jesus has promised to overcome the darkness. He's already broken its power if you put your faith in him. He broke its power when he died and resurrected and, uh, and, he, and he invites you to place your faith in him. And if you do, he gives you new life. And he is faithful and true to break you and to free or to break the power of sin in your life, to free you from all unrighteousness. Why would you hold on to your sin? Confess your sin so that he can free you from it. Keep on believing in the light. Confess your sin to one another and he will forgive you. This is why we have these liturgies of confessing sin together each and every Sunday. What we're doing here isn't enough. This is us setting up a practice and a rhythm as a family so that we can get in the habit of confessing sins in our own lives. What we do on Sunday when we confess sins corporately, we're saying this matters for us. We need to confess sins as a corporate body, but your family needs to confess sins as a family. And you need to confess sins to your brothers and sisters individually. We need to have that pattern. And if the Spirit of God is residing in you, and he is if you've placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus, Ephesians 3 says that Jesus lives in us if we place our faith in him, then don't decorate your life in a way that grieves him. Like if you can imagine in your mind's eye, <clears throat> Jesus residing in the home of your life, right? Um, don't decorate it with curtains of pornography. Don't put up pictures of jealousy. Don't put up decorations of pride. In fact, this enters you into a season, into a life of taking those things down. Instead, putting up decorations that are pleasing to him, like love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and self-control, all the fruits of the spirit that actually give him, um, that do not grieve him, but actually grow you up into the maturity of, uh, of Christ so that you are a son of God. You actually live like a son of God, that you actually represent the God that is living in you. Rev Reformation and revival starts at home. It's real easy when we preach these sermons, and certainly a lot of my sermon has been pointed to the darkness of our world, but it's easy to point fingers but in, in reality, it has to start with us, right? It has to start with us. Judgment starts with the household of God. So let's confess our sins like we actually believe that he can free us from the darkness. Confess your sins to one another. He is faithful and just to forgive us. And he has demonstrated that by coming to us right? He has wrapped himself in flesh. In verse 14, it says that he didn't stand from a distance from our need. He didn't scoff at us. He didn't wrap, uh, like push our nose into it. He didn't, uh, he didn't like stand at a distance asking us to like clean ourselves up or uh, like pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. He knows we cannot. So he actually came to us. Light has come into the world because we love the darkness and nothing less than the sacrifice of the Son of God could free us from it. Jesus came at Christmas to live a perfect life, one that we were actually called to live. And he died a death. Christmas is pointing us to Easter, that Jesus had to come and die for the ungodly, for the sin in our own lives. But John 12, 46 says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. 
Your hope this morning to not remain in darkness is to put your faith in the light who has come to us at Christmas. And that's what we ask you to do this morning. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, we invite you this morning to place your faith in Jesus this Christmas season. Come forward. Here in a little moment when we take communion, uh, I'll be standing down here. Others will be standing down here. We would love to share with you more of what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus, what it means to grab hold of the light, to actually become a son of light, to actually trust Jesus for your righteousness, to be um, free from the sin and the death that easily entangles you. If you're looking for that this morning, come and we would love to have a conversation about that. But for those of us who are putting our faith in Jesus, who say, he is the light, he's the one I'm putting my faith in, he is my only hope, we're gonna come and take communion here in just a moment. The way we take communion is by tearing a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. We have juice in the glassware and wine in the stoneware. And this is for Christians. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, we would love to pray for you this morning. We would love to share with you how you can find hope in Jesus. But please don't take this meal because this meal is pointing you to a deeper reality. If you don't believe in that deeper reality, which is the gospel that I just explained, if you don't believe in that, then this will for you just be bread and juice and cheap wine. Like that, for you, it will only mean that. For those of us who are trusting Jesus, it's so much more than that. It is so much more than that because it's pointing us to that life has overcome death that he is our only hope. And if that's your declaration this morning, come and receive communion with us. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Jesus, you are the light of the world. And we just, we fall before you this morning with joy in our hearts, with confidence in our hearts, knowing that you have overcome the world. And you did it in the most unimaginable way possible. You did it through lowering yourself. You did it through humbling yourself. You did it through taking on flesh. You came by living a life as an example for us, earning the righteousness of God. You came dying a shameful death. What was the son of God doing on the cross? That was not the place for you. And you did it anyway, because you love us and you did it to overcome the darkness and to make us sons of light. God, you are, we glory in that. We honor you for that. We love you for that. We dedicate our lives to you for that. God, as, you, as we come forward to take communion just now, would you uh, turn that up in our hearts? Make us a people of good cheer that we would take heart because you've overcome the world and we love you. In your name, amen.